You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Before we pray, just to kind of climb into this, um, what an odd title that I gave this class, The Comfortable Word for Our Despair. And you're here, and I don't know why you're here, and I'm very aware of that. Um, uh, to talk about despair, I mean, that's one thing I just want to kind of start with. You know, it's, it's, you know, Jim Monroe, who just preached, said if you want to empty a cocktail party, talk about um, total depravity or something like penal substitutionary atonement, or just chime in as like, hey, when are you in despair? You know, that's pretty much going to leave you all alone for all that you need to do. Um, uh, but I wanted to have a class on despair. It's, it's not been an easy spring and summer for a lot of people, and I know that. Um, some untimely deaths. Uh, both directly in our community, um, our faith, our, our church, but also in the, in, the, in the people around and near. And us personally, um, somebody named Chad Bird, who a lot of us know, um, uh, lost his son um, in a hiking accident. He, he taught in this class during Lent as he was a Lenten preacher, and he was here in March, and he was with a lot of us in February. I'm looking at some of y'all in the room um, in Israel, and his son is a naval cadet. Um, uh, at the uh, at the academy in in Annapolis, and he was in a just a, a random hiking accident in Chile, and he died. Um, and that's that's touched me, not quite into the slew of despond to call uh, to call forth John Bunyan, but but it's it's been a gut punch. And so uh, whether it's untimely deaths or just conversations that seem to come up with recurring frequency for me where people are coming to me and asking the question in all sincerity and seriousness, is the Lord coming back because it's getting worse and worse and worse? You know, the signs and wonders, is this it? Are we in, are we in the last days? And the answer to that is yes, we are in the last days. Um, no, I don't know that it's getting any worse than it was. I mean, I'll always say that the first family didn't turn out so well. There was Adam, there was Eve, there was Cain, there was Abel, and then there was just Cain. Um, uh, it's not been rosy at any point in, in human's history. And yet, despair. Um, there seems to be palpably in and around and among us a sense of despair. Um, and so, to name the thing, Lord willing, and I mean that as a prayer, Lord willing, to name the thing in and of itself might be hopeful and freeing and a chance to... Um, uh, to hopefully hear a comfortable word. I knew Jono was going to be teaching in, in the three weeks, and he was away this week, and he was going to sort of riff, as it were, in uh, uh, Thomas Cramner's language of the comfortable words, um, the gospel proclamations to, uh, to hurting and wounded consciences. Uh, so I wanted to sort of have a pause in the middle of all that and have a hopefully a comfortable word, a strengthening word, there's that word fortis, fort, like a fort, a mighty fortress is in the middle of the word comfortable. And, and so that's what it means is a strengthening word to gain strength alongside of another. The Holy Comforter, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who is called alongside of us to minister to our bruised bones, um, to our weary and bruised bones. And so if the Lord, now it's the prayer, Lord, Gather your people beneath your wings, um, as a hen might gather her chicks, and uh, and speak your comfortable word for whatever brings us 
to this class at this hour. Um, uh, help us, um, O oh God. Uh, our help is in ages past and our hope in years to come. We pray this humbly and yet boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. So despair, uh, just breaking the word down, it always involves a loss of hope. I mean, that's what the word's etymology actually comes to. And, and I think about this a lot in my role as a counselor, my privilege as a counselor. There's an active sense of despair, which tends towards something like desperation. You can hear the word des- despair in the word desperation. Um, to my ear, anyway, it connotes more activity, almost even a fierce activity, as in I have nothing else to lose, so I might as well you know, grapple with the giants, again, in Jim Monroe's good sermon um, today, with a, with a singularity of focus. When somebody is in a desperate attempt to save their life or somebody else, there's a frenetic activity to it. And so there's that aspect, certainly, of despair um, involving a loss of hope, or maybe coming down to, I have one more shot, and so I might as well go all in, in desperation. Um, or there's the other way we sometimes think about despair, and it's more, this is how I tend to it, um, like despondency, and in a spiritless inactivity, um, where there's a, a, a stuckness, a sunkenness, a, um, uh, an emptiness, a bled-outness that's to it. Um, this looks a lot like depression for a lot of people, um, uh, the sort where it's, uh, uh, you can't get out of bed and you just, there's a languor to it. Um, just climbing into the word and even to the feeling. To get to the comfortable word, surely we're coming there. I promise you we will. Uh, but to come through it. And we hear the Psalms in some places where almost, I mean, I, I did this on Thursday, just flipping through the Psalms. Uh, there are, there are some psalms out of the 100, 150 uh, that don't have elements of it, but clearly um, the Lord's people crying out to God with some aspect of desperation or despondency. And so just to pick two well-known psalms and to let some of the words just begin to, uh, to frame uh, our, our approach to this, to this idea, the strengthening and comforting word to our desperation and our despondency. Psalm 42, a good example of desperation, I think, where there's a, 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 a focused activity. Um, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. And just a word, when I was in my um, uh, uh, college years, and I would, I, would, I would work at a summer camp, summer camps, and there was a song back then, some of y'all may know this, that started off, uh, as a deer pants for the water. And it was really sweet and melodic, and it was just um, gave this sense that, oh, that's so, so nice, almost like Psalm 23, like a shepherd leading us beside still waters and restoring my soul. I don't think that's the picture of Psalm 42 at all. I mean, it's, the, it's, a, it's a, a, a desiccated, emaciated, uh, uh, desperate animal that's dying of thirst, as a deer pants for the water. Um, if you're out and about in the woods for any reason at all, and you come up on a sick animal, and it's plain, and they have a maniacal, desperate sort of look about them. They wander, and they're coming, just where is the water? That's how the psalmist here is coming to God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. My soul is cast down within me. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Uh, And as a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Um, Or... Uh, well, as it comes, the refrain, if you know this psalm, it is one of the great, it's one of my favorites, I'll put it that way. Um, there's a refrain that happens, I think, three times in the psalm. A spirit-inspired uh, movement. This is, this, is the, this is a foretaste of the comfortable word to our despair, the strengthening word to our despondency, where the spirit reminds us and speaks to us and tells us to tell ourselves who God is and what he has done. And you'll know these words. Whereas it is in the midst of the pit, you get out and you get up and you remember and you talk back even to yourself, to your soul, to your despondent and bruised soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. And so we'll come back to that that dialogue, as it were, that we hear at the same time. But going back into the despondency, more the inactive, less the desperate, just the, the almost empty, running on fumes um, song of a, of, a, of, a, of a despondent and despairing soul. I am, from Psalm 6, I am languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. And my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. We people in despair um, often ask some form of the relatively, relatively simple question. Am I, am I okay? Am I going to be okay? Are things right? Will things be right again? Just right and okay, I think, are the basic, simple questions that we're asking. This is the Bible's word. It's good to hear. I mean, I've said this many times to some of us before. This is what the... the, 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 the the big $5 theological word justification means. And again, word processors have done us a huge favor here. Because when you, you know, you can block your margins left, you can block your margins right, or you can justify. And what are you doing when you justify your margins? You're making the words right and okay, as it were, to the other words in that sentence, to the margins, to that paragraph, and to the whole page. And there's an old word, that to me is a melodic word, right-wisedness. And that's what justification is, is when God, for Romans 8 tells us, great throwaway line, it is God who justifies. He's the only one. And now that you, know, you have been justified by faith, so he says in Romans 5, um, you have peace with God. You are right-wise to God, to one another, to yourself, 
and to the world, even as you're broken and even as you're moving forth with a despairing and despondent place. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your help in God. He is my rock and my salvation. It will be all right. It is all right. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Justify. The words on the page. Right wise it. Uh, with God, with myself, with others, and his creation. Um, so, despair. A little bit more to climb in. Two examples from an artist named Francisco de Goya, um, Spanish artist uh, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, um, who started off as a court painter with kind of airy, light, beautiful portraits, especially he was a great portraiture, um, some nice landscapes where there were lots of of, uh, of light. Um, one person said Goya went from a painter where there were no shadows in his, uh, in his paintings to one remarkable transformation, to one there was no light. Because in his, his mid-40s, he got some disease which eventually took away his hearing and it made him very paranoid, probably lapsed into aspects of, uh, of, uh, of some form of insanity. Uh, retained his gifts, and some of us know some of his paintings with words like um, uh, the lunatic's yard, I think is what it's called, um, Saturn eating his children um, uh, from, the, from the Greek myth. I mean, just some dark, brooding, hopeless, despairing, longing art. Um, Francisco de Goya, and then also a, a brief um, description one of the most evocative descriptions that I know of what it means to be depressed from a writer named Andrew Solomon, who's a frequent contributor in things like the, uh, 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 the, New, York, uh, the New Yorker and the Atlantic and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, de Goya, um, can y'all see this okay? You know, I like to kind of have visuals because it's about this point in time, you're like, you know, something, something to spice things up a little bit and take away from the words. Um, a piece called The Seated Giant. He didn't, he didn't title a lot of his paintings, evidently. They weren't commissioned. He was just, you know, as a fire in his bones, so speaks Jeremiah. Um, so would say, go. he just had to paint, I think. He just had to get something out. And so here's one called The Seated Giant. Um, uh, I've seen this over the last 20 years or so, frequently associated um, or as an illustration of depression, which is interesting. Um, a lot of people who are depressed really resonate with this painting. Um, as I see it, I mean, you've got the crescent moon up there in the upper right corner, and then this, this massive man. He's got a twin painting called the Colossus, and he thinks maybe this is a, a, another part which comes after in the chronology of, of those paintings, uh, where you've got uh, this massive man seated, as it were, on the edge of the world. I mean, that's how huge he is, just gargantuan, colossal, and enormous. And he's naked. It's a nude. And you see his strength as he's sitting there on the edge of the world with a scraped landscape. I mean, it's, it's so unnoticeable as almost to become glaring. When you go down, you see what he's seated on. There's, there's nothing there. Now it's absolute desolation. And the word I keep coming back to when I've sat with this painting this week is scraped. Just, you know, pulled across, as it were taking people, plants, animals, life itself, the unmaking of creation. And then it's as if Goya caught him in whatever it is, thought, slumber, despondency, and he's turning 
And there's all these paradoxes of strength. I mean, look at his muscles. Um, uh, and sadness. Um, or strength with that kind of vulnerability. Almost a wistfulness, a nostalgia, an ache as he looks back. Maybe even possibly, you know, what have I done? You know, this, this world which I destroyed. And now, what's left? Um, so, Goya's giant. Um, and then another, which I think is probably going to connect with a lot of us, because, again, unnamed, and they went back later, and simply called it the dog, or maybe the half-sunken dog in Spanish, el perro. Um, and here, I mean, you can see what he's done. And this is one I think a lot of us just... There's a, an easy way to empathize because there's a helpless animal. Um, a lot of us who love our dogs, love our cats, love our animals, we find an easy place to connect with the dog, sunken in whatever that is, the muck, the mire, maybe it's meant to be water, mud, quicksand, we don't know, but he's there and he's stuck and it's just this head, let's look back, kind of plaintively looking out, waiting for the hope that may not come. Um, and then the heaviness of that sort of ochre that just kind of presses down, as it were, pushing the dog. The waves and the breakers, they flow over me. You know, so said Psalm 42. Um, the ochre and the emptiness of what's ever above the dog, pushing it under. Um, despondency, despair, waiting for the deliverer that is probably not going to come, or waiting for death, or waiting for something. Um, just these two images to leave this up in that sense of despair, despondency, as we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. Waiting for light, air, laughter, okay, being right, rest, relief, uh, something that takes the weight off my shoulders or off my chest that gives me a reason not to cry so that my couch is not wet with tears. Again, hearing Psalm 6. Um, and then Andrew Solomon, the last. I told him, why did y'all come? I don't know. Holy Spirit, do your work. That's all I can pray. Um, because here's one more. Uh, Andrew Solomon, a great writer. I mean, a wordsmith. And he's likening, uh, he's remembering an old tree that he saw as a child, an oak tree. That was a symbol of strength. And uh, you know, if you remember that as a boy or a girl, if you grew up in a town like Mayberry or, uh, or Seeley, like I did, where you were just kind of out and about, and every tree in the, in, in the city was there for your climbing, if that's what you wanted. There were trees that you knew. Um, they seemed to represent, now I can look back, you know, strength, um, a certain timelessness to it, because the tree was always going to be there. Of course, it always had been. My life up till 10 years old, it had always been there. Because to an eight-year-old, always isn't that long. And he goes back as an adult, um, and a vine has come up and has started to envelop the tree. Um, and it's a big vine, you know, huge, that goes up and around and starts to strangling the tree. And the way that uh, Solomon equates this with depression. Um, I'll, I'll read this. I returned not long ago to a wood in which I had played as a child and saw an oak a hundred years dignified in whose shade I used to play with my brother. In twenty years, a huge vine had attached itself to this confident tree and had nearly smothered it. 
It was hard to say where the tree left off and where the vine began. The vine had twisted itself so entirely around the scaffolding of the tree branches that its leaves seemed from a distance to be the leaves of the tree. Only up close could you see how few living oak branches were left and how a few desperate little budding sticks of oak stuck out like a row of thumbs up a massive trunk. Fresh from a major depression in which I had hardly been able to take on board the idea of other people's problems, I empathized with that tree. My depression had grown on me as that vine had conquered the oak. It had been a sucking thing that had wrapped itself around me, ugly and more alive than I. It had had a life of its own that bit by bit asphyxiated all the life out of me. At its worst stage of major depression, I had moods that I knew were not my moods. They belonged to the depression, as surely as the leaves on that tree's high branches belonged to the vine. If my trunk was rotting, this thing that fed on it was now too strong to let it fall. It had become an alternative support to what it had destroyed. In the tightest corner of my bed, split and racked by this thing that no one else seemed to be able to see, I prayed to a God I had never entirely believed in, and I asked for deliverance. And he goes on, Every second of being alive hurt. Because this thing had drained all fluid from me, I could not even cry. My mouth was parched as well. I had thought that when you feel the worst, your tears flood. But the very worst pain is the arid pain of total violation that comes after the tears are all used up. This is the presence of major depression. So Solomon, Goya, Psalm 6, Psalm 42. Um, my tears have become my only food. Um, uh, my couch, my bed are wet. Um, in fact, I've run out of tears. And now not even be able to cry. That's the very worst. Where, O oh Lord, is your hope? And where is your deliverance? Three places I want to go. Um, two places which may be a little bit of a surprise. They were to me. I would even say the Lord gave me this. Um, uh, and then one to another healing story where our Lord took the man who was deaf and mute and spoke that, that beautiful word in, uh, in Aramaic, epaphtha, coming out of Mark 7. Um, but first, to find hope and a word of comfort from a strange place at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. To hear this in two directions, because what do we hear normally? What do I hear normally? We hear the Ten Commandments, the Ten Laws, the law which kills. Uh, certainly that's true. And I think we hear rightfully the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have an other God before me. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not take thy Lord's name. It's all the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The prohibitions, the right directives that limit and prohibit behavior, thought, thinking, feeling, that tell us the bar, the canon, the rule of those things which are done and left undone. But now hear this, hear this, by the Holy Spirit's work who divides the law from the gospel and gives to you, dear child of God, in the midst of despair and despondency, a word of hope, a word of gospel, who will take even a word like thou shalt not and turn it 
fancy word here, to the eschatological promise of God. At the end of all time, when time itself is drawn out, it's called the eschaton, the book of Revelation, when all things and all manner of things are now well, so speaks Julian of Norwich. Uh, that time when time is no more, as C.S. Lewis would say, the author of the play comes out on stage and says, now I am here, the author of the story, the one who can direct a new beginning and a new start. I'm speaking now to the new creature, to the one who has known their Lord and their God. To you, the Lord speaks this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, you could even say, you will not have other gods before your face. And the one who speaks is the one who can actually bring that about. Hearing it this way, you shall not have another god before you. Because I, I the Lord, who am powerful and able to do it, have taken them away. And now it is just you and it is just me, face to face, no longer needing to believe, no longer needing to trust. For it is simply here in this now of the new creation that I am here. Or in the next chapter, or later in the, in the Torah, two chapters over in Deuteronomy, the great prayer of the Jewish faith, what's called the Shema, which just means hear. And this is going to be an echo, you know, forewarning in Mark 7 when we hear epaphta, be opened. Same way, hear, the gift of hearing, hear, H-E-A-R. Uh, let your ears, which were previously stopped from hearing the living and active word of God, his gospel of deliverance, taking you out of the house of slavery and bondage, to depression, despair, despondency. Turning it now and opening to this word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, all your might. We hear that as law, as we should, at the beginning of the Holy Communion service, when we hear the summary of, not the gospel, it's the summary of the law and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as you hear yourself. And the first thing we say after that, Lord, have mercy. Because we can't, and we know it. Left to myself in my own power, the law is commanding. God's good law is telling me what I ought to do, and I cannot. But to the new creature, to that ear which is opened, hear, O Israel, hear you, the new Israel of God, uh, the Lord your God, personal, second person singular, your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Once again, an undivided, unmediated, undepressed, undespairing relationship with the living God. And then lastly, um, to, uh, to go to our Lord, to, to come to place of, uh, of Mark 7. Um, uh, lots of paper here, sorry. Um, never careless or trite. 
when I come before someone who's in pain? How does our Lord come? You know, here's, let me read Mark 7. Um, hearing this, um, then he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him, don't know who they are, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him, they begged Jesus, to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And that's the word that brought me here. He sighed. That's the same word that is used in the next chapter, Mark 8, where it said, And and Jesus groaned when he heard the Pharisees and saw their hardness of heart. Or that's even more poignantly for me, what Paul uses, the same word later in Romans 8, when he says, For we know that we groan, we sigh, we let out this pafta, where there's just this, this, this exhalation of a despondent prayer, because I have no more words, because we groan under the curse and under the weight of sin and its fractural nature, which comes down like a colossus and sits on this world and shatters it and all of our relationships into a thousand pieces. And there, 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 Paul says, we know that we groan as in the labor and the pains of childbirth waiting for the revelation of God to his people. Well, friends, here it's breaking through. Every single time Jesus restores a limb or loosens a tongue or opens an ear, the new creation breaking through, making all that which was unmade, made well again. Everything that Genesis 3 destroyed, he brings back to Genesis 1 when he says, The Lord looked down and saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was evening and it was morning, the sixth day. It's the sixth day of the new creation coming back again when Jesus takes so strangely his fingers and he puts them in the man's ears and then he spits and he touches the man's tongue with the visceral, real things of creation, his created world. He comes back and he heals this man with that breathy Aramaic word, Ephetha. Just even hearing the word of just, ugh, just the groan and the weight and the press. And then hear, O Israel, Epaphtha, it comes out. And the word which is spoken does the very thing which it said. And his ears were opened. Um, the curse is undone. The one who was cursed, the one who hung on a tree and became a curse for us is then able to take the curse, turn it around, and bring it back to it was very good. So the last thing, uh, when the people are astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well, I think we're meant to go back right there to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.31, behold, there's that word again, by the way, those of y'all are tracking that word with me, behold, it was very good. Behold, he has done all things well. Behold, the kingdom is very near you. Um, And little flock, fear not, for it is the Father's good desire, his pleasure, 
to give you the kingdom. His Lord, my Lord, my God, yours. Christ, who is now here, the comfortable word made flesh for our despair and despondency. Amen. We have a moment. Any thoughts or any interactions with um, the, the, the images, with Andrew Solomon, with Mark 7, Genesis 1, Romans 5, Romans 8? We covered a lot here. Why did you come? I don't know. May the Lord be here. So. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, by your Holy Spirit's direction, um, divide your word to us. Um, and give to those who need hope, all of us, Lord, uh, hope and strength uh, in those desperate, despondent places. Um, And Lord, where we know people, uh, our friends and our family, who themselves are despondent and despairing, uh, give us the word um, to speak, uh, the embodied word to not say anything, but simply to be, um, to be present uh, so that you and your work can be done in your way, never lacking for anything that is needed. Um, Lord, be the comforting and strengthening word uh, for our despair. We humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.